one of my classes in Bible college, we were assigned to read a book by a guy named David F. Wells called God in the Wasteland. And overall, I thought it was a very challenging book. But in the book, Dr. Wells made a comment that has burned in my mind and has haunted me ever since. He said, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. And I don't mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially so as not to be noticeable. Now, that can sound like a rather harsh statement, but the world around us demonstrates its accuracy constantly. While the number of Americans who classify themselves as atheists is growing, the vast majority of Americans still believe, still claim to believe in some sort of divine being. The majority out of that group claim to believe in the God of the Bible. And a huge percentage of them would even go so far as to classify themselves as born-again Christians. But despite the claims of these people, Wells says that many of them consider God less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That, he says, is weightlessness. And Dr. Wells argues, convincingly I might add, that a part of the reason for the weightlessness of God is that we have caged God. We have taken the sovereign God of the universe and we have tamed him. Now, there are several characteristics of this tamed God. First is that he is a God who exists to meet our needs instead of our existing to serve him. Think how few people who profess to believe in God see him as the sovereign ruler of the universe to whom they must surrender their rights, their lives, their everything in order to do his will. A second characteristic of this tame God is that he is a God who can become indebted to us instead of the holy God against whom we have all sinned. And his every act of kindness toward us is mercy, but never merit. We see this in those who turn against God in the hard times of their lives because God had failed them. In their minds, they have kept up their end of the bargain by doing whatever it is they thought put God in their debt. But God owes them a life that is basically free of troubles and trials and hardships. And since he has not delivered upon that, God failed them and they will abandon him. A final characteristic of this tame God is that he exists to help us in our time of need. But he makes no inconvenient demands of our lives. Now, this is most clearly seen in those who take no thought of God during the good times of their lives, but become very devoted to him when things get hard. Now, that would be great, for often God does send hard times in our lives to turn us back to Him, except that their devotion to God, it only lasts so long as the hard time does. Once the hard time passes, then they once again go back to taking no thought of God. Now, sadly, these sort of views of God are almost as common within the church as they are without the church. Many within the church today live as what one pastor calls a Christian atheist. A Christian atheist is someone who professes to believe in God, but lives as though God does not exist. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they live wicked, sinful lives. It can, but it doesn't have to. Rather, it means that, that God, His will, His want, His word, bears no weight on their lives. It means that there is virtually no area of their lives that is guided by God's will and God's want for their lives. They never really focus on living every aspect of their lives for the glory of God. For these people, the Bible is often seen as the inspired word of God that is to be highly esteemed. And most often they will treat their Bibles with the utmost of respect and, and very often even keep them in places of honor in their homes. But despite the way they profess to view the Bible, it is rarely read and seldom obeyed. With their mouths they profess to believe the Bible, but with their lives they demonstrate it bears no weight on their lives. Their attitude towards the Bible is simply an extension of their attitude towards God. This is a dangerous 
attitude to have? How can we ensure that God's word bears the kind of weight on our lives that it should? That's what we're going to talk about today. Open your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 22. Page 302 if you've got a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Second Kings 22 and 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adalia of Boscath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought out of the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it to the hand of those who are doing the work, who are the overseers of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord, doing the work to repair the damages of the house. To carpenters, to builders, to masons, to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered to their hand because they deal faithfully. Then Hilkah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkah gave the book to Shapham and he read it. And so Shapham the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it to the hand of those who do the work and oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shapham the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkah the priest has given me a book. And Shapham read it before the king. Now it happened. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkah the priest, Achim the son of Shaphan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for all the people of Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. The title of the message this morning is A Tender Heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and you are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Father, the fact that you are great and awesome, and that is not just something that we say, that is the reality. You are worthy of our devotion. You are worthy of our lives. You have done more for us than we could ever repay. You have done more for us than we could ever even come even with you on, Father. Lord, through our sin, we we did owe a debt that we could not possibly pay and that Jesus has come and He has paid that debt on our behalf. So that we could be free. And oh God, today, we do not want to have a weightless view of our great God. We do not want to try to tame our mighty and all-powerful God. We do not want to hold your word in esteem with our mouths, but neglect it with our hearts and our minds and our lives. Father, today, use this time to tenderize our hearts toward you. Help us, Father, to have an attitude towards your word like the one that Josiah had. That, Lord, when we hear what your word says, that, Lord, it would weigh heavily on us. That, Lord, when our lives are out of sync with what you have said, that it would bother us and keep us up at night. Father, that when our beliefs are not in line with what you have said is right and true in your word, that, God, we could not minimize it, that we could not justify it, that we could not rationalize it. But, oh, God, that we would bring our hearts and our beliefs and our lives 
in the conformity to your word. Father, send your Holy Spirit today to use your word like a two-edged sword. Let him convict us where we need convicting. Let him strengthen us where we need strengthening. Let him break us where we need breaking. Let, uh, let him encourage us where we need encouraging. Father, let none of us leave here today without knowing that you were here, that your spirit spoke, and that you worked in our lives to bring us to you. Help us, Father, to be changed from glory to glory so that we can be more like Jesus tomorrow than we were today. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let him give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Use this time to bring glory to your name. Use this time to have your way in our lives. Glorify yourself, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this story is one of the great stories of revival in the Old Testament. The nation of Israel had drifted far from the Lord for a long period of time. For around two generations, wickedness had prevailed among God's people. They had given themselves over to worship the gods of the pagans around them and taken part of all of the immorality that went along with it. They had abandoned the word of the Lord and they abandoned the worship of the Lord. God's word was all but lost and the temple was in a state of deep disrepair. They were in deep spiritual darkness and God's judgment was hovering over them at the time when young, Jeph, young Josiah became king. His devotion to God enabled him to lead the nation back to God. Under his leadership, the nation experienced a, a deep and a genuine revival. Look at verse 18 of chapter 22. Here's God speaking and he says, But as for the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. You tore your clothes and you wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. This revival came about largely because of the, the tenderness of Josiah's heart and his willingness to humble himself before the Lord God of Israel. Judgment would come, but it would not come in his lifetime. That gave him time to lead the people back to God. That gave him time to help the people come to know God and to follow Him. That tenderness of heart, it made the difference between life and death in Josiah's life and in the life of the people. And so the main truth today, it is that, that a tender heart can make the difference between life and death. A tender heart can make the difference between life and death as God speaks and deals and convicts us in this life. So how do we make sure that our hearts are tender before the Lord? Looking at Josiah's example, I think there are three principles that we can learn. The first is we need to be committed to God. And that sounds pretty basic, but let me show you some things about this. Josiah's life, it was one at this point that was deeply committed to God. We see it in verse 2. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the ways of his father, David, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Now, keep in mind, he's really young at this time. But he has devoted himself to the Lord. He's going to do whatever he thinks God wants him to do. He's not going to turn aside right to the right or to the left means he's not going to deviate. If he believes that that something is God's will for him to do, he's going to do it no matter what. Nobody's going to talk him out of it. Nobody's going to tell him he's too young. Nobody's going to tell him times have changed. Nobody's going to tell him anything. He is just going to do what he knows. God wants him to do. He is devoted enough to God that he is willing to do God's will, no matter what that may be, no matter what anybody might think. But his devotion to God or his commitment to God is also seen in his care for the temple. 
The temple has largely been neglected since the time of his grandfather. Manasseh. Manasseh was a, a wicked, one of probably either the most wicked king of Israel or in the top two or three. He was a terrible human being. He, was a, he did awful things within the land. And basically led the people away from the Lord. Led them not just to a place where they didn't observe God alone, but they really didn't follow God at all. The temple was not taken care of. It was in complete disrepair. Manasseh had lived and he had been king and he had ignored the temple. Manasseh's son had lived and, and he had been king and he had ignored the temple. Then Josiah, he inherits the house of God, the centerpiece of the worship of the Lord God of Israel. And is in a place of disrepair to the point that he's calling out and sending people to go and fix it so that they can begin to worship God again. That they can begin again to go into the temple and offer their sacrifices and sing their praises and worship God as they were supposed to. And a part of what makes this so amazing is what they find as they begin to repair the temple. Right, Verse 8, they, they found the, the word of God. The word of God had been in just as much disrepair as the temple had. Right. So rather than them gathering and a priest gathering and reading the word of God and instructing them from it, it had been set down and the temple had just come collapsed around it, so to speak. And it was a mess. And as they were cleaning, they had and they said, hey, look, we found God's word. And the reason I point this out is because Josiah's devotion to God it wasn't based upon a deep and an abiding knowledge of what God's word said. Josiah had lived his life without God's word being taught to him. Josiah had lived his life without sitting in Sunday school, without sitting in church, without having a Bible of his own to read. The Bible, as far as they knew, was basically lost. But Josiah knew that there had been godly kings. He knew that David... His father had, had been a man after God's own heart and he knew the stories of David and so he tried to live the way David lived. He, he found stories of other godly people and he, he did what they did. He said, this is what God wants me to do and I'm going to do it. Josiah didn't say, well, I don't have God's word and so I can't live for God. Instead, he said, I, I know a little bit about what God's word said. I know a little bit about how God intends me to live. And what little bit I know, that I'm going to live out. That I'm going to put into practice in my life. What a great example for us to follow. To be committed enough to God to live out what we know, even though we don't know everything. Many of us, and I would, I would probably say most of us, even all of us, and be accurate. We know far more of the Bible than we live out. I mean, if we were raised in church, in Sunday school, we have been taught the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots of Scripture. We know what God says about turning the other cheek, about making disciples of all nations, about doing all things without griping and complaining, about loving others as we love ourselves, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we, we probably, even if we can't give the exact address of a passage, nearly every one of us in here can give principles regarding holiness, our thoughts, our speech, our actions, our attitudes, our reactions, our priorities, and our values that are based upon God's Word. The question isn't do we know, but do we do? Do we live what we know? You know, in all honesty, you could almost say that for many of us, we could stop reading and live and just do and do and do and, and build up until we're doing everything we know. And then start reading and learning and growing again. But we don't want to do that. That's not what we need to do because we're never going to reach the pinnacle. We're never going to get the place where we know everything there is to know. There is always there's always more to know in the scripture. 
There is always a depth of understanding that we didn't have before. There's always changes that need to be made in our lives. I mean, we're to be like Jesus. So unless you're just like Jesus this morning, there's still room for growth. There's room for change. There's room for things that need to be changed in your life. But so often what we want to do is we want to focus on that next big knowledge that, well, I'll, I'll, as soon as I understand this, then I'll begin to do that. And when I have all the answers over here, I'll begin to do that. When the need is just to say, yes, I'm going to continue to grow and I'm going to continue to study. and I'm going to learn all that I can. But right now, here are four or five real things that the Bible says I'm supposed to do that I'm not doing and I'm going to work at doing them. Here's four or five things that I am doing that the Bible says I'm not supposed to do. I'm going to work at getting those things out of my life. Commitment to God is not seen so much in what we know, but in what we do. Remember when Jesus talked to the, the religious leaders, he said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. I mean, they were the Bible scholars of the day. They, they had memorized like the first five books of the Bible. Anyone competing with that today? But what was the problem? It wasn't they didn't know. It wasn't they didn't study. But these are they which point to me. And you will not come to me that I may give you life. The problem wasn't that they didn't know what Scripture said. The problem was they weren't doing what Scripture led. Had they been obeying Scripture, it would have pushed them closer and closer and closer to Jesus. They wouldn't obey that. If we want our hearts to be tender, then what we need to say is, I don't have all the answers right now. But here's what I know and what I know I'm going to do. Now, I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to live out every piece of Bible knowledge I have. I'm going to do my dead level best. And when I fail, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to take off and I'm going to do it again. But I am not going to let the fact that there are things I don't understand keep me from living out what I do understand. D.L. Moody said once, or he's the one I've heard it attributed to the most. He said, it's not the stuff in the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the stuff I do understand. You know, there are things we're not going to understand. We, I, we went through Revelation on Wednesday night just a few years ago. And every year since then, when I read the Revelation, I think, well, I was wrong here. I probably would preach that differently today. But here's the thing. The seven bowls representing this or that. And that's not nearly as significant as how I treat my wife. That's not nearly as significant as how I treat the server at the restaurant this afternoon. That's not nearly as significant as not whether I live a holy life. Being able to give an answer to all of the questions and understand all of the types and symbols. It's not nearly as important as just doing what we know we're supposed to do. If we want our hearts to be tender, then we need to be committed to say, here's what I know and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I know. I'm not going to let the fact I don't know something keep me from doing what I can do, what I know I'm supposed to do. And that commitment to God, it keeps our hearts tender before the Lord. And that tender heart can make a difference between life and death. Secondly, take God's word seriously. In verse 8, they find the, the book of the law. And this is a, just a can, I can't even imagine what an amazing find this is. They find it and they read it and they take it and they go to the king and they begin to, to read it before the king. Now, the Bible, the Old Testament, Part of the, the Old Testament, part of the law, was what they call the blessings and the cursings of the law. And what this was is there were certain things God had told Moses to write down. And God said, blessed are you if you do this. And blessed are you if you do that. And if they obeyed his law and kept his covenant, then he would bless them in certain ways. 
But along with the blessings, there were also cursings. There were things that God had said, but if you disobey me in this way, here are the bad things that are going to happen. Here are the bad things that are going to come upon you for disobeying me, for rejecting my word. It's my conviction that the part that they read to the king dealt with the blessings and the cursings. And I believe that based upon the way the king responded. As they read before the king what God had said, the king tore his clothes. I mean, that that is a deep sign of mourning. But there is a, oh, what? I mean, now keep in mind, up until this point, he had no idea that God's word said that. He had no idea that the way that the nation was largely living was in violation of God's law. He didn't know for sure that God had said, cursed are you when you do this, because he had not been taught this. This was the first time he's hearing it. And his first time to hear God's word and to hear the threatenings of God's word and the punishment and the judgment that's coming. The king is overcome with grief. He is overcome with mourning. He, he tears his clothes. And he sends someone in verse 13 to go and seek the Lord. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but look at this. We'll look quickly at the wording. Go inquire of the king for me. For the Lord, for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words that the book have been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. And they they the book to do all that is written according to it. Let me ask you, do you do you see this as sort of a passive casual say, hey, hey, Scott. That all sounded bad. Why don't you go see what God has to say? Is this real? I mean, I mean, does, does, he seem, does that seem casual to you? A guy that hears it and rips his clothes just casual? Doesn't it seem more like he's, he's terrified at this point? Oh, oh my gosh. God has said if we do this, we're cursed. We're going to be punished. Judgment is going to fall. Oh, 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 somebody go speak to the Lord and see if there's hope. Somebody go see if there's mercy. Somebody go call on God and find out if we can get out of this. And there's no, there's no minimizing their sin. There's no rationalizing their sin. There, there's no justifying their sin. The king is just overcome by what God has said and what God has promised will happen. Because they are not doing his word. Do we take God's word that seriously? As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of of what God said in Isaiah. He said, for all of these things, my hand is made and for all and and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one, I will look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit. And who, who trembles at my word. Now, the idea of trembles at, at the word there, it, it's not, oh boy, this is great, I got a new Bible kind of tremble. It, it is not a, man, this is so cool, now I can go to work and I can really lay the smack down on this person because they don't know the Bible as well as I do kind of tremble. It is really a, my life is out of sync with God's word. Oh my gosh. I'm not doing what God has said to do. I'm, I'm doing what God has said not to do. I mean, do, do we, do we tremble at God's word? When we read in scripture something that the Bible says, we're supposed to do and we're not doing it. Our lives are out of sync. Do we tremble at the word? Or do we minimize the fact that we're out of sync? Or, or do we rationalize why we're out of sync? Or do we justify why we're out of sync with God's word? Let me give you some examples. Some things that, that we know the Bible says. Right? Judge not. You be not judged. Now, 
course, this is a verse that's taken out of context and meant to mean all kinds of things. It doesn't actually mean. But for the sake of today, let's agree that it means something, right? That when Jesus said, judge not, he really meant that we're not supposed to judge. So judging people, it's a thing. I mean, it happens. It it really happens and people really do it. So what do we do if we find ourselves being judgmental of others? Do we minimize it and say, well, at least I'm not committing adultery. I mean, I'm judgmental, but hey, at least I'm faithful to my spouse. Do we rationalize it by saying, well, but they're really bad. I mean, this person, they, they've done worse and they've, they shouldn't do things like that if they don't want me to think thoughts like this. Do we justify it? That's just who I am. I mean, I, I've got a, just a character flaw, nothing I can do about it. I'm just a judgmental person. Or do we tremble at the fact that we are doing something Jesus said we're not supposed to do? When judgmental thoughts well up within us, when the words come out of our mouth, do we tremble at the fact we have done something God has said we're not supposed to do? Or how about this? Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, do we do we do things so that we'll be promoted and people will say, oh, look at how good they are. Are are we selfless or are we selfish? Do I never put others ahead of myself? Do do I always think that I am the most important person in the world and I should never, ever have to do what anyone else wants to do? And if so, how do you respond to that? Do you justify it? By saying, well, if if I don't toot my own horn, nobody else is going to. Do we minimize it by saying... I mean, it's not like I do sinful things. I just make sure that I'm taken care of first and I'm the most important one. Do we rationalize it by saying, well, I was an only child and my parents kind of raised me this way or I was the youngest and this is just how I am? Or do we tremble at the fact we are doing something God has said we're not supposed to do? When those selfish actions come out, do we tremble at what we've done? When we do something so that people will glorify us, do we tremble when we realize what we have done? Oh my gosh, cannot believe I did that. Or, or what about this? With it, our tongue. With our tongue, we, we bless our God and Father. And, and with our tongue, we curse men who have been made in His image. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Now, let me explain curse. Curse doesn't necessarily mean profanity. It it can. But primarily there, it means to say bad things about. I don't have to use profanity to curse someone. All I have to do is just chew them up and spit them out about who they are or how they are. And if I was a meddling preacher, I'd say who they voted for, but I'm not, so I won't go there. But out of our mouths... Do we one minute say, God is great, God is awesome, I love the Lord. And then in the next, do we just rip people apart ruthlessly? Look at how they look, what they were wearing. Can't believe they said that. I think that person's a moron. Do we then begin to just chew them up with our words? And if so, how do we respond? I mean, do we... Do we justify it by saying, I only told Kelly. And it was just spouse to spouse, so that's okay. Do we minimize it by saying, well, I mean, again, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like I killed someone. Do we rationalize it by saying, I mean, if they weren't an idiot, I wouldn't call them an idiot. I'm just a realist here. Or do we tremble? 
at the fact we have done something God has said we're not supposed to do. And then one more. Oh, that was the last one. thought I had another one. I took it off. Do we take God's word seriously? To take God's word seriously isn't to say, I take it, my Bible, and I put it on a nice place at the house, and I say, look, I've got a Bible. Isn't that cool? It's pretty. It's the prettiest Bible I've ever had. To take God's word seriously isn't to say, well, I have a rule. I don't ever put things on top of my Bible. I would never do that. So I take God's word seriously because I always make sure it's on top. Or I take God's word seriously. I would never, I would never put the Bible on the floor and leave it there. I, I wouldn't. I just don't ever do that. That's, I take it too seriously for that. None of that really means we take it seriously. I mean, anyway, that doesn't mean we take it seriously. Take it seriously means that when we see that our lives are out of sync with God's word, we're bothered. More than bothered. I mean, Josiah is, is more than bothered. He's more than just saying, oh, well, that's unfortunate. He's terrified. He's overcome. He's broken in his heart over the fact that he and his nation are sinning against their God. That's what it is to take God's word seriously. If there is an area of your life where you are out of sync with what God says and you minimize it, and you justify it. Or you rationalize it. You don't take God's word seriously. It's really not that important to you. This, this isn't just a book. These are the very words of God. And what this book says. is what God has said. And if this book says that we're to believe a certain thing, then if God were to speak audibly and tell us what to believe, he would say the exact same thing. And if this book says we're not to talk a certain way, and if God were to speak audibly to us, he would say the exact same thing. If we... Want to know what God says about how we should treat others? We look here, and if God were to speak audibly, He would say the exact same thing. And taking God's word seriously, it requires that when our lives are out of sync with God's word, that we respond in a way similar to the way Josiah responded. That we recognize. We are guilty before Almighty God and that we, that we are deserving of His punishment. Rationalizing, minimizing, justifying our sin, it is not okay. The truth is, every time we rationalize every time we justify every time we minimize we harden our hearts just a little bit toward god every time we say nah probably not we harden we harden our hearts toward god and a tender heart well, it often makes the difference between life and death. And then finally, humble myself before God. But if I, I want to have a tender heart, then I have to be committed to God to do whatever it is He wants me to do. I don't have to know everything, but what I know I'm going to do. I have to take His Word seriously. What it says is what I'm going to believe, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to not do. But then when I find myself out of sync with God, I'm going to humble myself before the Lord. Josiah, and, and again, what appears to be terror to me, sends in verse 13 for them to inquire of the Lord to find out what, what they need to do in response to the fact that they have sinned against God because there is judgment and doom and punishment. 
written against them. And it's significant to me that Josiah doesn't start saying things like, well, yeah, but I mean, I never knew. My grandpa was horrible. and He led people away. I mean, nobody my age has ever even heard this stuff before. So that that's not that can't be it. He doesn't say, well, yeah, I know God said that to Moses, but boy, the culture sure has changed. I mean, you can't really believe that, you know, blessings and cursings like that nowadays. The world's just different. He didn't say, well, yeah, we're doing all this stuff, but boy, look at the Amorites. Ooh, those Amorites, they're terrible people. He sins and he seeks God. Is there, is there hope? Is there mercy? What do we do, God? I mean, what do we do? Seriously, I mean, that's kind of, he's not trying to make a deal with God. He doesn't send them to say, God, here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do. We'll make 20 sacrifices a day for the next three weeks, and then we'll kind of go back to normal, and that'll take away our guilt, and that'll take away this punishment. It's just, oh God, oh God, we've, we have done such awful things that you have said not to do. Oh God, we deserve the judgment and the wrath that's coming. Oh God, is there any mercy? Is there any mercy for us here today? And notice how God responds in verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Now that's important. God's word's always true and it's always going to come to pass. Not a jot or a tittle will fail of all that God has said. They have done the things that would cause them to be cursed in punishment and that is going to happen. There is no taking it away. Because they have forsaken me and they have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against them and against this place and it shall not be quenched. But as far, but as for the king of Judah... Who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner. You shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Concerning the words which you have heard. Because your heart was tender. And you humbled yourself before the Lord. When you heard what I spoke against this place. And against its inhabitants. That they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and you wept before me. I've heard you. Surely therefore I will gather you to your fathers. And you shall be gathered in your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring upon this place. And so they brought the word back to the king. There was mercy. There was grace. There was a time of reprieve before the judgment came. But it was there because the king humbled himself before the Lord. Because the king went to God and said, Oh Lord, we are way out of sync with you. Can you be merciful? Can you give grace? Is there any hope? He didn't try to make a deal. He didn't minimize, rationalize, or justify. He let the fact that his life was out of sync with God break him and humble him. And then he sought God, what do I need to do? There is such a great need in our day. And I don't even, I'm not even going to say for the unbelieving world, though certainly for them. I think the church of Jesus Christ needs to let God's word weigh heavily on their hearts. To let it break them. And let it cause them to be humbled before their God. Because the reality is the vast majority of the church of Jesus Christ lives out of sync with God in one way or another. But is not bothered by that. 
They're not concerned. They have a reason why it's okay. They may toss up a, a, oh Lord forgive me, but I can't help it, kind of prayer. But there's no desire to change. We were going to look at chapter 23 too, but take some time and read chapter 23 to see what Josiah did. When God gave him the time, Josiah, he called the people together. He made a covenant before the Lord to do what God said. And then he set out to bring change to the land. Cut down the cut down the the idols of Baal to begin to teach people the word of God. Right? This wasn't just he felt bad and God said, "Okay, I forgive you." And Josiah said, "Whew, go back to the life the way it was." Everything changed because of the opportunity he had been given. And, and again, the sad fact is, we don't see this in the church today. We don't see people this broken. And this humbled over their sin and the fact that they're out of sync with God. We see people having reasons why that doesn't apply today. We see people minimizing the fact that they've sinned. We see people comparing themselves to others to say, well, at least I'm better than them. We, we see people finding all of these other things. But there's no brokenness. There's no being made humble before God and saying, oh, my God. What do I need to do? Because I am out of sync with you. I think we need. One of the things I pray for, for me, and I'm not saying you people all stink, be like me. I'm, I'm saying all of us. But I think we need a, a fresh dose of the kind of humility and brokenness that you find at the day of Pentecost. I remember Peter preaches. Holy Spirit comes down and Peter preaches and he gets to the message. I love what the people say. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest, what shall we do? I mean, there's no, no minimizing. There's no justifying. There's no saying, I'll, I'll do this and that'll make it better. There is humility before God. Oh God, what do I do? About the fact that my life is out of sync with you. You know, the reality is we try to fix it ourselves, but it's our fixing it that's got us out of sync to begin with. If your life is out of sync with God, you will not fix it on your own. That is pride saying, I can take care of it myself. When what's needed is to be broken and humble before the Lord and say, Oh God, I can't. Oh God, this is my fault. Oh God, what have I done? Oh God, help me. What do I do? Oh God. The reality is we are a very, very proud. Proud people. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't be broken at an altar because somebody might see us. And what would they say? If I cried in public and let people see that I was broken over my sin. We won't be broken even in private. Because the reality is we kind of like the areas that we're out of sync with God. We don't really want to change. Every time we push back against the brokenness, every time we push back against the being made humble before God, we harden our hearts a little bit. We make them harder and harder and harder. Till Hebrews talks about a hard heart filled with unbelief that departs from the living God. Friend, if you want to have a tender heart that can make the difference between life and death, then you had better let God's word weigh heavily on your heart and you had better let it humble you before the Lord. One last thing and, and we'll close. And again, this was something that we just didn't have time to cover. Josiah's tenderness, humility didn't just spare him. The nation was brought to a place of revival because of him.
His tenderness of heart, his humility before the Lord, it not only gave him place to repent, it gave thousands and thousands of others place to repent. Time to turn. Your hardness of heart, my hardness of heart, it doesn't just affect me. And it doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around us. And your tenderness of heart and my tenderness of heart, it doesn't just affect me. And it doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around us. You can just look in a family. You find in a family where the husband and the wife have a hard heart towards God's Word. You often find children that have a hard heart towards God's Word. You look in a family and you find children that have a tender heart towards God's Word. It bothers them when they're out of sync. Most of the time you'll find parents that have a tender heart towards God's Word that are bothered when it's out of sync. There are untold numbers of people around us that will be affected by either our hard hearts or by our tender hearts. And it can make the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Let me close with a story. Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon says, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Every one of us today, we will respond to God's word. And we will either respond in ways that soften and tenderize our hearts toward God. Or we will respond in ways that harden our hearts toward God. And the decision about whether or not you respond to tenderness or to hardness, it is all you. I mean, it's not me. It's not the person sitting next to you. It's not your mom or your dad. It's not the way you were raised, the church you grew up in. Right now, you are before your God in a moment of truth. And you, as an individual, will respond in a way that will either harden your heart against your God and push you away from Him, or it will tenderize your heart and draw you closer to Him. Make your choice wisely. Let's stand.